one of the most dangerous places to be in is not the known risks, but it's the things that you think you know with absolute certainty that will always blindside you in our business. All right, Mr. Anthony Scaramucci, welcome to On The Margin. Thank you for joining me. All right, Michael Ippolito, thank you for having me. Where are you from, Michael Ippolito? I was going to say, you were picking up on the Italian. I'm actually from uh, Boston. It's nice to get another uh, Italian man on this podcast. Are you from the North End? What part of Boston? I'm not. I'm actually from just outside Andover, Massachusetts. Oh, you're from Andover. Yeah, it's a beautiful town. Yeah, yeah, I, I say Andover, nobody knows, you know. Well, uh, no, but I went to school at Tufts, so I know the, I know the area pretty well. Oh, nice. Yeah, very yeah. good. I spent um, a lot of time in Winchester. It's not too far from Andover. It's a good place. It's a good place, yeah. I'm uh, I'm in Williamsburg right now, so I'm uh, changing my stripes a little bit. You're uh, in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Yeah. All right, Brooklyn. well, you got you to gotta go to Bomonti's Restaurant. It's one of the oldest restaurants in New York City. You know, I feel bad. You know, you're like the tenth person to tell me I still haven't been. I think this is. I needed this. Uh, I needed this endorsement yeah, here. Yeah, it's probably gonna, get the best raviolis in the city. Great sauce. The Bomonti family still running the place. of great people. Amazing. All right. Well, we'll circle back to Bomonti's at the end here. I want to. I want to talk about you, my friend. Um, okay, let's and, start uh, with me. I definitely want to kind of get into what you're doing at Skybridge right now, but I actually would love to start kind of at the beginning of your uh, career, um, uh, kind of at Goldman. Uh, you know, okay. I heard you kind of tell the story about you moving into IB there and then into uh, wealth management. So kind of start us off. Like, how did you get into uh, Wall Street? Tell us a little bit about your, your first job at Goldman. Well, you know, I'll, I'll give you some detail that you probably don't want. I, I was at law school not loving law school. I'm going to take you back. Okay, I, I get the acceptance to law school. I drive from Tufts to Harvard. It's a two-mile drive. I park the car. I have $250 check that I need to deposit to secure my spot in the Harvard Law School class. So I go to do that. They have my check. I ask them for the admissions, uh, the alumni directory, if you will, of the law firms that mm-hmm. recruit. And I thought I was going to be a Wall Street lawyer. And so I started at one Wall Street, which was the Irving Trust building. And I rode up the uh, elevator at the Irving Trust building to the 28th floor. So no security, pre 9-11, first building. I'm going to be a Wall Street lawyer, not knowing that there are no Wall Street lawyers per se, that they're all over the city. I think they're on Wall Street. This is how naive I am. And I'm standing in the lobby, and I say to the woman, I'm here to see, I don't know, I'm looking at the alumni directory now, Worthington Bobscom the 32nd, you know, some WASP guy, right? <laughs> and so he comes out with the suspenders and a pipe. I mean, we're talking old school 1986 sort of stuff. And I say, sir, I have no money. I just got accepted at the Harvard Law School. I will come and work at your law firm as a paralegal if you would take me. He says, okay, I'll start you at $8 an hour. You know what I said to him, Michael? Can you make it 10? Can you make it 10? <laughs> And he said, wow, you're like a little bit of a pepper in the ass sort of a kid. I said, yeah. He says, okay, I'm going to make it 10. And I worked for 12 weeks, 100 hours a week for $10 an hour, okay? And it was grueling work. And we were working on the uh, uh, the, the Continental Airlines merger with the People's Express. Grueling, grueling work. I hated every minute of it. I went home. And I told my mother I did not want to go to law school. Now, you're Italian, so you're going to appreciate this, even though you're of a new generation. I told my mother I want to go to Harvard Law School. She said, 
I'm going to kill myself. I mean, like right out of Moonstruck, okay? I mean, that's what these Italians do to each other. So I said, okay, fine. And so I went to law school with the understanding of two things. I would not be a lawyer, and I would try to find myself a job outside of law school. So that's the trajectory into Goldman Sachs. Now I'm fast forward. I'm an insecure 24-year-old. And I want to get the best job you can get. It turned out I thought the best job was in investment banking at Goldman in the real estate department. I got that job, sucked at it, and got my ass fired after 18 months. And so it's too long-winded of a story, but I wanted you to set the scene. I actually thought I was going to be a lawyer. Why? Mm -hmm. My dad was making about $35,000 a year back then, and they were paying Wall Street lawyers $65,000 a year. It's 35 years later, they're now paying starting salaries 200,000 a year, uh, but it was 65 back in the day. So I, the reason I love that story is like, first of all, I think everyone should know what it's like to get fired at some point in their career. Uh, well, that was the first time. I mean, I got, I got fired a little bit more spectacularly from the White House uh, a couple of years ago, but you know, listen, I mean. You're, well, you're just an overachiever. You're not you know? taking, if you're not taking <laughs> risk, if you're not pushing yourself, if you're not trying to pursue your dreams, if you're not taking risks with your career, uh, you're going you're gonna to hate yourself. Okay? I would rather have a few humiliating strikeouts and break a few teeth as I crash to the ground than, okay, let me keep up appearances. I've got to go to the country club and tell everybody how perfect my life is. Mm. Okay, you know who's got a perfect life, Michael? Nobody. Okay. Somebody was like uh, talking to me the other day and he says, well, you know, I don't, I don't tell any lies. I'm like, you don't tell any lies. I think everybody tells lies. Tennessee Williams, remember the playwright? He said, mm. mendacity, the telling of lies, and the awareness of death are the only two things that separate us from the chimpanzees. Okay. Everything else is a form of neuroses associated with the fact that we tell people lies and we're worried about our own deaths. It's just the way the world is. Mm -hmm. so, so we can pretend and we can stand on ceremony with each other, pretend our lives are perfect. I would rather give it to people straight. I appreciate that. I pre and look, like the, the first firing experience, I, I would argue the second one as well because you landed your way back at Skybridge and now are doing a ton of really interesting things. But that first firing from your job at Goldman, you actually wound your way back at Goldman, right? Just in a different division. Total luck. Yeah. Um, I mean, but, but you, but you pushed a, for it. You're, you you're a young kid. How old are you, if you don't mind me asking? I am, I am 27. 27. All right. So, you know, when I was 27 in 1991, I was fired from Goldman Sachs. That's 30 years ago. Mm. I got fired February 1st, 1991. It was humiliating. It was painful. And I had school debt. And I had rent that I had to make because I had signed a one-year lease at a place up in Tarrytown, New York. Humiliating stuff. Okay, humiliating. Okay. However, uh, I had a roll of quarters. There were no cell phones back then. I went back into New York City and started hustling for a job. Now, here's the thing I will tell you. You got to make sure you're nice to people. The guy that fired me turned out to be a referral for me for the other job at Goldman. So I said, Michael, you like me. I'm a good guy. I just happened to suck at investment banking. I'm probably going to be good at sales and marketing the firm's equity products. And he said, well, I actually think you would be good at that. You know, we didn't fire you because you were nefarious or had a bad attitude. And so he, he put me in the, in the running for that job, Michael. Mm. So rule number one to all of your podcast listeners, 
don't burn, there's not necessary to burn bridges. The only reason why Trump and I go off on each other, he started it. Once he attacked me and then he attacked my wife, I mean, come on. Who, who from New York would take Trump's bullshit in terms of attacking their wife? I mean, I know Ted Cruz has got like knee pads on his elbows and stuff like that, but not me. Once you go after my wife, I'm going to take the gloves off and maul you. You know? That's the crossing of the so, red line. I agree. Yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, you know, I, don't, you know, I don't know why they're afraid of this, you know, gelatinous train wreck. I don't even, I, for the life of me, I can't understand it. But whatever, point being, uh, I don't burn bridges. And by the way, if Trump called me and apologized, that would be over. I don't care. Mm-hmm. You know, General Kelly and I were sore at each other. We're now traveling the country together, giving speaking. Uh, we're, we're, we're out there on the lecture series, speaker series together talking about our experience in the White House, our relationship after he fired me, how we got off on the wrong foot, and how we like each other today. Yeah, you know, so the, 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 the point being, you know, you, you, know don't, you don't have to burn bridges in life. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about the decision to leave, because you, you kind of rose to the ranks there. You were a vice president. Then you decided to leave Goldman with uh, Andrew Bozhart to form uh, Oscar Capital, right? And that was yeah. around like 2001. So take us through that. And then if you could go through like the acquisition by Newberger Bourbon, your, your uh, eventual move to, to Lehman Brothers after that was acquired, just walk us through that whole kind of period of your life. So we're making good money, Andy and I. You know, we're making seven figures. We've got a big, big of biz- business. I'm 31, 32 years old. And Andy's turning 40. He turns to me. This is 25 years ago now. He says, look, I want to start my own business. I think you'd make a great business partner. Let's go into business together. And so you have to think about how young we were, 40 and 32. We leave Goldman. Uh, we leave all of our fixed income business behind. You can't take the firm's data. You can't really take the firm's clients. But what you, ha- what you can do is after you leave and people know that you've left, if they'd like to do business with you, they have to call you. So we left about an $850 million book of business and started our new company with $125 million. Now that was 1996 in December. And then one of the luckiest things that could ever possibly happen happened to me. What is that? We're in a raging bull market in 1997. And so don't confuse brains with the bull market. Our entrepreneurial success was born from a bull market and it probably covered up a lot of our mistakes. As an example, you wanna buy Bitcoin at $400 and it goes to $40,000 and you were smart enough to hold it, well, you know what? You know, it could cover up a lot of your mistakes, okay? Yeah, it's pretty good performance. So, so we had very good performance. It led to new assets. It led to growth. It led to expanding our business. And then Newberger Berman was interested in acquiring registered investment companies at that time. And mm-hmm. so they came in, they swooped in, and they made a bid on our company. And that's what happened. And that's how we... Uh, that's how we ended up at Newberger, and and then luck would have it, Newberger sold to Lehman Brothers, and I had kept all my shares in Newberger. I liked the company; I thought it was a good idea. But this is another cautionary tale. So I now got all my Newberger Berman stock swapped into Lehman Brothers, and in 2005, I went to Dick Fold and said, you know, I'd like to leave and start a company that I'm going to name Skybridge. He said, okay, I'll help you. You've been a good citizen here. They gave me some money to get the thing started. I said, Dick, I'm sitting on a ton of stock and options in Lehman. I'm a big believer in the company. Could I hold my stock and options? Let me check with personnel. No, you cannot. 
And so they forced me to sell at $41 a share. Well, Michael, that stock went to $89. I was ready to stab the eyeball out with like a ballpoint pen, okay? But you know the rest of the story. It became the largest bankruptcy in U.S. history. Right. And so I like telling people that story because it's a story about what you think you know. And I thought Lehman Brothers was going to $300 a share and how great I thought the firm was. What you think you know you may not actually know. And as an investor, one of the most dangerous places to be in is not the known risks or even your perception of some unknown risks, but it's the things that you think you know with absolute certainty that will always blindside you in our business. And I'm gonna now fast forward uh, because we did make a, a, a big mistake starting 2020. It's hard to believe now, given everything that happened, but I started 2020 with the expectation that we were at full employment and that we were going to have very reasonably good growth in calendar year 2020. And then, of course, the pandemic descended on us and blew the doors off of that. And so that was something I thought I knew with relative certainty that I got completely wrong. And so your listeners should really pay attention to what I'm saying. You don't want to be overconfident. And you're not smarter than your grandparents. You're not smarter than your parents. And, you know, you got to check your hypothesis and you have to check your assumptions in life. And if you don't do that regularly, you can get caught with your pants down in a lot of different situations. Yeah. But here's here's the great thing about you, man. Like I, you know, I listened to some old interviews that you did. Uh, you know, I, I thought of you before I did kind of my research for the show of you as an investor, and I certainly still do. You're also this amazing entrepreneur, right? And there were some big, big risks that you took, especially around Skybridge. Um, you know, and there were, you know, you're kind of telling the story about how you had to you know, mortgage your house, and then you kind of sold a bunch of your liquid assets and like make this big acquisition for the firm. That to me, I always just marvel at people that are willing to take that level of risk because. As you pointed out, you know, I'm 27. I'm the founder of a company. I left my job uh, four years ago to start a, a crypto conference company. As you can imagine, not a lot of people told me that was a great idea at the time, uh, but it's turning out okay right now. Uh, but I don't have like a family or, or kids that depend on me to support, so I'm just constantly in, in awe of people like so you. What conferences are you doing, Michael, in crypto? So we host, uh, we host a conference series called the Digital Asset Summit. Uh, conference series. And basically the idea is, you know, you're gathering, there's, as crypto and, and Bitcoin in that community expands, right? There's kind of that core, very retail focused community, but there's a bunch of new financial uh, kind of cohorts coming in. So there's RIAs, there's fund of funds like yourself, there's macro hedge fund, there's investment banks, there's this whole other much larger world of financial services and investment professionals. And nobody is translating what's going on in this space to that audience. So basically our niche uh, kind of from the beginning has taking some of those developments in the world of crypto, digital assets, putting that in finance speak, right? For people who might want to learn about it, but they might not be like in the weeds with all the technicalities. Well, first of all, I wish you a lot of luck. I'm also happy to be in the conference business. So I know how hard it is to put these logistical things together. And uh, if I can be helpful to your conferences, you let me know, okay, it'd be my pleasure to do so. Uh, but yeah, you know, you know why you take that kind of exogenous risk? Because you don't have a choice entrepreneurs are jumping off a cliff and then they're trying to build an airplane while they're descending to the ground. So you just do not have a choice. And so for me, uh, I got started. 
Uh, my business was not doing well after 2008, the global financial crisis. So that was 13 years ago. You were at the ripe old age of 14. And I was sitting at Skybridge thinking that it was going to be no bridge or blown up bridge because of the financial crisis. And so I had to go and think outside the box. And one of the things to do was to do a strategic acquisition. And so those assets were cheap because they were needed to unload them, but they were still tens of millions of dollars that were required to purchase it. And so I had to come up with a scheme. And unfortunately, that required me to mortgage my house, sell my liquid assets. I basically rolled the entire proceeds of the sale of Oscar Capital Management, which had made me more or less financially independent, into Skybridge and into the purchase of the Series G and the Legion funds from Citibank. Now, that proved to be a really good idea. It worked. We've had good performance. We had bad performance in March of 2020, but the last 10 years have been quite good. And I think there's a lesson in that as well. What's the lesson there? You got to believe in yourself. You got to take the risk. You have to make the assumption. I lost a very talented guy at Skybridge after I made that acquisition. And I said, why are you leaving? He said, well, you know, in order for you to hit these numbers and pay back that borrowing, because again, I didn't have all the money necessary. I put up a big sum of it, but then I had to borrow money. In order to pay back that borrowing, you're going to need to raise $4.7 billion. Hmm. And we just went through a global financial crisis. There's no chance you're going to do that. I got young kids. I'm leaving. And he went to a very established bank. And I loved him. He's a super talented guy. And I still tease him about it to this day. But we raised not $4.7 billion, but we raised $7 billion. So we were $3.3 billion over the total that he was expecting. Now, mm -hmm. I say that with great confidence in hindsight. When I was going through it, Michael, I had no idea if I was going to be able to raise it or not. And neither did he. And he was saying there's no chance. Yeah. So, but, And you don't know. And by no. the way, had the pandemic come in 2009 or 10 while I was putting those things together, we'd be out of business. So entrepreneurs that want to be honest with you will tell you a lot of their success is risk-taking, strategic thinking. A lot of their success is based on luck. But I think the core critical aspect of people's success as entrepreneurs is never giving up under any circumstances. I'm sorry. I'm not failing. You're going to have to put me in the ground. And by the way, since you're Italian, you're likely Catholic. So your mother, you know, she doesn't want to put formaldehyde in you and put you in a casket. Um, but, you know, you're going to have to cremate my ass to get me to give up. You know, so I in the casket. I'm trying to crawl my way out of the goddamn thing. So, so the point being, you got to push as an entrepreneur. And you have to wake up mentally disciplined for anything. Um, and, you know, I had a rough time last year. At this time, my firm was not performing well, uh, but look at us today. We branched into crypto. We branched into digital infrastructure. Uh, we put a slate of 17 stocks together and created a UIT called the Skybridge Digital Innovation Portfolio for First Trust. We're about to launch an Ethereum fund on July 1st. We got our SALT conference up and running. It'll be at the Javits Center at their VIP extension. And uh, we're, we're talking to the government in the UAE, in Abu Dhabi, of doing our conference again there. We did one there in December of last, 
of, you know, before the COVID 2019. So we're in the game. You're in the game, man. Let's stay in the game. And let, and that's the other thing. Find entrepreneurs that want to help you. Okay, I'm all about helping people, particularly the younger generation, because lots and lots of people had to help me to get me to where I am today. Yeah. You kind of make your own luck, right? And and you're also, it's it's clear, I'm sure you, you've learned, you know, being in the markets as long as you have, you're basically being paid to take risk. And it's not always fun to take that risk. There's like tremendous volatility that you have to go through. But maybe that experience, and maybe now we can kind of talk about what kind of led you to moving into Bitcoin. And I'm really interested to hear about what you're moving into with ETH. But like, how, how did that experience, did that experience as an entrepreneur, the ability to like weather volatility, did that inform your decision into Bitcoin? Or like, what, what made you kind of make that big plunge at a time when, frankly, it wasn't very obvious or, or a popular investment. So I've been doing a lot of work on Bitcoin. I started in 2014. It was a negative decision back then, unfortunate, because those coins were $400 a coin, Michael. Um, but I looked at it, I said, it's just not scaled. It's not big enough. I'm running institutional money. I can't embarrass myself. Remember, you don't get fired for the things you don't do. If you have a CYA mentality and you do cautious things, you don't get fired. You get fired for bold things that go wrong. That's what you get fired for. So people that have institutional mentalities, they have a tendency to be very cautious and slow moving. So I'll fast forward to 2019 into 2020. I was looking at the situation and said, okay, whoa, this is cresting over 100 million users the demand is going to outstrip the supply of Bitcoin. That's ultimately the fundamental analysis. And I can explain why, because Bitcoin is scaling pursuant to the network effect. And so I see these coins at 100,000 at year end and potentially what Kathy Wood is saying, a half a million dollars a coin in the next five years. If that's the case, uh, having a one, three, five percent position would be a phenomenal thing for our business. And if I'm wrong, let's say I'm 100% wrong, Bitcoin trades to zero tonight, I've only put 5% of the company's assets in Bitcoin, so it's not big enough to hurt me. So I think the risk reward is there in Bitcoin. And so once they went over 100 million users, and once we had the situation where we could store it safely in places like Fidelity, the third component of this thing is what would the regulatory rubric look like? And I think the regulations are going to be relatively benign in the U.S. And hopefully I'll be right about that. And if I'm not, it'll hurt Bitcoin in the short term, but not in the long term. Bitcoin's here to stay. There are too many countries that are interested in Bitcoin, including El Salvador. Small country, but let's face it, they're using yeah. it for their fiat currency now. Yeah. Now, we're recording this on a day when the FOMC, it's literally happening uh, as we're talking, basically. And you know, I would love to, you know, is your investment thesis in Bitcoin, do you kind of buy this entire idea of, hey, central banks are essentially debasing fiat currencies? So any asset, be it as, you know, or a stock or a bond or real estate, anything that denominates, um, you know, their value in fiat is basically being devalued. Is that kind of the, the reason or do you think, hey, look, the Fed has been around for a long time. No. They're going to continue to be around for a long time. The, What's your kind of investment thesis or thoughts on how the Fed the, is affecting the, things? The assets not being devalued, it's actually increasing in the nominal value. Mm. You know you know what I mean by that? So, I mean, it, the 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 thing that's being devalued is the currency. What is the, yeah, so the what should, what should up What should upset you if you're being paid in dollars, which I am, the dollars going to your bank account, they're a supposed store of value. Mm. 
But whatever's in your bank account today, your purchasing power is probably down about six or seven percent. So, mm. so you got taxed. You have ten thousand dollars in your account today. You probably have ninety three hundred dollars worth of purchasing power. That money became less in terms of its store of value. It became less in terms of the goods and services you can purchase. Mm. So. That is going to create a corruptive force in the system. That's what spurred Satoshi Nakamoto to write the white paper and to create these cryptographs now known as, as Bitcoin. And But if he's right, and I predict he is, that this standard will start to apply and all of a sudden now you have a store of value that is uncorruptible. You can make more gold. You can print infinite numbers of dollars. Mm. You can't do that with Bitcoin, and I think it's catching on. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so talk to me a little bit about the decision to move into ETH, because obviously, like, Bitcoin is this kind of very uh, programmable, uh, very scarce digital asset. Um, it's kind of a, a good hedge against, I guess, central bank uh, profiligacy or, or whatever you want to call it. ETH is like a very different asset. So talk to me a little bit about what is the decision to kind of create a product around ETH? How do you see institutional demand there sort of shaking out? Well, I mean, there's a lot of layers to the question, but let me try to give you the three ba basic themes. Okay, mm -hmm. Theme number one is that Ethereum is being used. It has a proof of stake, lower energy deployment, defined use case. And so mm -hmm. it is being used in these non-fungible tokens to buy and sell them, and they attach nicely. They have the right application slash dApps mm -hmm. to make that system seamless. It is the secondary to Bitcoin. So if there's a Coke, it's Pepsi. Uh, but it has a big enough use case where I think it'll be around for a very long time. And I don't see any reason why those coins can't get to $10,000 a coin if Bitcoin's on its way to a half a million or 100,000. And so I, I expect there will be a greater proliferation of these NFTs. You may do one. Our SALT conference may do one. Some of the generals I know in the commemoration for the Afghanistan invasion may do one. It may go the, the profits will go to charity, of course. But the point being is this proliferation of activity will be very helpful to ETH, and I think it will boost the price relative to the demand that's out there. Yeah. Can you, can you give me a sense, just because you talk to such interesting people, right, in your line of work. Like, I know uh, you, you mentioned in the past you're good friends with Dan Loeb. I know you have money with Steve Cohen. These are some of the smartest guys uh, in the world, right? And it seems like, especially Dan Loeb, is moving into Bitcoin or digital assets in a pretty big way. Can you talk to me, like, what is the level of understanding kind of at the manager level, right, uh, with the folks that you allocate money to? How are they kind of thinking about this space? How have you seen that kind of shift um, over a period of time? So I think everybody, myself included, starts out as a skeptic, doesn't really understand it. And also, mm -hmm. when you're over the age of 50, you have a tendency to get stuck in your ways and you have certain formulas of things that work for you. And so you want to avoid the other things because you don't want to get caught with your pants down. Right. And so what I love about Loeb, Stan Druckenmiller, Paul Tudor Jones is that they're neurally plastic guys. So in Dan's case, he's 59. Those other guys are in their mid-60s. Um, but they're neurally plastic, and they're always thinking about where the world is going, not where it was, and how can I replicate something that happened in 1995 when it's 2021. And so when you study Bitcoin, as Paul Tudor Jones said, it is a mathematical equation. We're solving for value transfer using airtight mathematical equations. 
And I think there's a certainty to that that's decentralized, that's not subject to the whims of Jerome Powell, who's on my television screen right now, opining about inflation. Okay, and so so to me, if you can create that standard and you can exponentially grow the standard, um, I think there are very, very exciting times to come. And that's why we're involved in it. Yeah, absolutely. Can you talk a little bit about how, so you've been doing this for 30 years. You've been doing financial market. Sorry? I've been doing it for 33. I was six foot 11 when I started. I'm down to <laughs> five, five and a half right now. No, I'm not five, I knew that's five what and a half, okay? I'm five that's foot a- nine. That was one of the funnier stories. When I left the White House, a woman, I was standing next to my luggage. So mm-hmm. a carry-on bag, and I was leaning in it, but there was a camera angle that made me look the same size as the luggage. And so there's a woman that wrote an article about me said, he's 5'2", let me prove it to you. <laughs> so it's like, a, well, hey, it's a good thing that you started at uh, 6'11", otherwise you'd be like three feet with the amount that you shrank. So Yeah, no, exactly. exactly. Um, but, you know, but you've been doing it for a long time, right? And it seems to me, right, I have obviously been paying attention to this for less time than you have, but it just seems kind of ridiculous to me. The entire world is watching the FOMC right now. And if Jerome Powell says, like, the wrong level of abstraction, right, about tapering, if he just says, I'm thinking about tapering instead of thinking about, thinking about, right, you know, stock could slide like 20%, right? So it just seems like more than ever we are paying attention to the Fed, how they're getting involved in the market. Has it always been like this? Is it worse than it's ever been? Like, how do you think about the development of the, the Fed? And, and how you- well, it's, more, well it's, it's worse than it's ever been. Has it always been like this? The Fed has been there as a backstop to curb inflation and to try to get there to be no deflation and just leave money as a store of value. But in the last two crises, it wasn't capable of doing that. And so since, has it always been this way since 2008? The answer is yes, they've inflated, they've printed money. They're trying to solve a lot of different problems using that blunt policy instrument of monetary supply. And it's not healthy. They would have been better served to have some monetary supply, some fiscal stimulus, and some manufacturing and education bill that would help to train people with new jobs and to get them up to speed from an educational perspective. You know, you look like a very bright guy. I would imagine if you went to a public school, it was close to Andover, Massachusetts or somewhere near there, uh, if it wasn't Phillips Exeter itself. And the reason I'm saying this is you tell me the zip code of the kid, I can tell you whether or not the kid's getting a good public school education. Mm. And so we don't have a one-size-fits-all strategy. It's very uneven. And I think it creates this modality of resentment in our society, Uh, the fact that people don't feel like they can get ahead or they're not starting at the same starting block as you or I did. Yeah. I mean, this is why I'm so excited to talk to you as well. Like, you've got this very interesting background. You've kind of been in Wall Street for a long period of time. You worked at Goldman Sachs. You run this investment fund. But you also kind of really give this idea of, I feel like you can speak to kind of the common man as well. And you have aspirations for uh, politics and you want to give back. I mean, it feels like we're living through a really weird time, not just in terms of what's going on in markets, but just inequality as well. When you think about like, just like exactly what you just said, right? Being born in the correct... That's being born from the Fed's policies. You realize that's being born from their policies. Because as they inflate, the people that own assets, the value of the assets go up nominally. Mm -hmm. But the wages are going up. You have 26, 27 million people unemployed. So the assets are going up, the stock market's going up, but the people's wages are not going up. They get angry. Right. And then they start chanting Donald Trump and so, so this sort of revolting nonsense. Yeah. 
I mean, how, how much is that concern? I mean, even when you think about kind of our um, adversaries on a global stage, right? You kind of think about China, you think about Russia, the vectors of attack that they're approaching the United States. There's obviously trade, right? But there's also this kind of cyber warfare targeting via Facebook that's actually designed to exacerbate um, kind of tensions within the U.S., right? So it just kind of worries me. All the stuff that you're saying sort of worries me just about income inequality. It seems like the Fed is exacerbating that. It seems like our enemies have kind of correctly understood that's our, our weak spot and that's what we need to pay attention to. Do you kind of think about these things? Are you, are you worried about that kind of stuff? When you just think about markets, like the future of America, like what are the things that, that you think about and you're trying to fix? Well, I, I, listen, I think about it all the time, and I have a Salt Talk series. This morning I interviewed uh, General St. Honoré. Mm. I don't know if you recognize that name, but he was the general in charge of Hurricane Katrina. He's 73 now. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi, put him in charge of the investigation related to the police practices of the Capitol Police during the January 6th insurrection. But he's also a anchored patriot. He's also a huge believer in the country. And he, on that podcast, would tell you, you know, we're split. We have an ideological struggle going on. We have a propaganda struggle. You're right. There are outside forces on Facebook and other places that are disrupting the flow of information. You have internal pockets of disaster. Donald Trump tells people that the election was stolen. I mean, we know that it wasn't, but he says it anyway. And so that creates a seed of doubt. You have people that are lying about the science related to mm. the vaccine. People that are afraid to get the vaccine. And so they're putting themselves and their families in harm's way by not getting the vaccine. And all of this stuff fits into that category of media fragmentation. Sensationalism leads to profits. And if I can get people to fight with each other, that's more entertaining than having a blase, mundane government. So, yeah, you might be right. They may pack the Congress with uh, the Senate, if you will, with these movers and shakers that will flip. Um, or the very opposite could happen, that filibuster stays in place, and no matter who's in power, power, it can't get anything done. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like we're headed towards, however you want to phrase this, it seems like we're headed towards a time of transition, I guess I would say. Um, and, you know, it, it kind of strikes me that on the one hand, there are all these things that seem to be um, kind of worrisome, right, if you're just looking towards the future of America, society, et cetera. Um, but, I've, you know, I've also heard some of the great uh, macro investors of our time describe this as one of the most exciting times uh, to be investing actually over the course of the last like 20 years uh, just because there's so much change going on when you kind of look at markets right you're obviously moving kind of further into bitcoin how, how you know how do i guess do you see opportunity coming up over the course of the next 10 years? do you think that it's exciting or are you worried like how are you just looking at the future so let me let me stipulate a few things the fed is your anchor to windward and so whatever they're doing you're gonna have to adapt your investment theology and philosophy around them. Number two, the Fed killed the 60-40 portfolio mm -hmm. because look at the bonds. The bonds are in negative yields now. Yeah. Very unlikely you're going to, you know, on, on a real basis, yes, they're 25 to 200 basis points, but if you factor in 5% inflation, they're all negative. And so now you have to weigh that against everything else that's going on. And so, yes, there is a very big strain. The Fed is saying, okay, let me hold my nose and close my eyes to the strain because I'm doing everything I can from my perspective to keep things going. I only have this blunt instrument of buying securities and lowering rates. The great irony for the Fed, you know, is back in 2019, in the fall, the economic numbers were so good 
that it was worth a call to Dr. Bernanke to say, hey, well done. You saw it before I did. You used the Fed's balance sheet to nurse the economy back to health and to repair the banks. But then, bam, you got hit again in 2020 with a global pandemic. And so we're, we're operating off the same playbook, but we're just using more and more money. So if you're a modern monetary theorist, Michael, they don't believe in deficits. It's no problem because I can turn to this printer behind me and just print more money. Hmm. Right? The government is issuing the dollar. So a modern monetary theorist will say, hey, tonight we can turn on the Mint or a cycle, uh, computer program. We'll have $27 trillion printed. We'll just pay it off. Yeah. That would have a disastrous effect on the world and in our economy. But you get the point that I'm making. There's a laissez-faire, blasé attitude towards what the government is doing in terms of constraining growth and not really helping it. And if anything, exacerbating income inequality. That's why Bitcoin and crypto and DeFi is so interesting to me because it's decentralizing finance. Yeah, absolutely. I opened up a African-American's store last week in LA uh, he did it on a thousand or so dollars he got it in a low rent area got the store open he's selling product and he took a picture for me of these like very large it must have been like Bob Lanier's shoe from the you know the 70s and he's he's in business so so you know listen I mean the world is going to uh, get better when it gets better, will there be too much money sloshing around? I don't know. The Fed had it. The Fed had it in 2019. Mm. When, it, when, it, when the pin popped uh, and those businesses that I just described had to close up and they had to you know, mask up and can't come to the store and all that other stuff, it put a lot of pain in the system. You know, you're, you're 15 months out. You got 27 million people knocked out of work, but your stock and bond portfolio and your Bitcoin exposure went through the roof. Mm-hmm. But those people didn't get, you know, they got a couple of stimulus checks, but they're suffering from a wage perspective. I agree. Yeah. I guess it'd be great, uh, and I know you've already been super generous with your time, but like, just paint a picture for us. So we've, we've kind of watched the Fed say, hey, we're targeting 2% inflation. Actually, we're targeting average 2% inflation. So we've been low. So it's okay if we move to 2.4, 2.5. Now they said, actually, we expect uh, 3.4% inflation. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm very curious what you think, because there are kind of two schools of thought out there, which is that one, hey, you know what, a little bit of inflation actually wouldn't be that bad. You kind of inflate away the nominal value of the debt. Usually when you have inflation, you have workers' wages are growing. That's actually kind of good for equality, and that's maybe like a natural reset and something that we're heading towards. Then there's this other school of thought that says, hey, no, that's actually nuts. You know, in inflation, anyone that's getting their living, if you're getting paid in dollars, you're losing your purchasing power. It's horrible for income inequality. And actually what you really want is deflation, right? So the price of financial assets falls, it becomes affordable to the next generation, etc. So I guess when you when you look out to the future, do you see it as are we definitely headed towards inflation? And if so, what does that world look like? Right? Is that is that helpful? Or is that like, really something to be looked out for? Well, we're definitely headed for short term inflation. Mm-hmm. Are we headed for long-term inflation? I don't know. You have to tell me what the Fed is going to do with their balance sheet. If they're going to triple the balance sheet from here, then yes, it'll be long-term inflation. You don't want deflation. Okay, I get what you're saying about lower prices, but let me explain why you don't want deflation. Because if there was a real economist, I just play one on television, but if there was a real economist here, what they would use the term on you is debt destruction. So let me see if I can mm-hmm. give you this example. It's not only the goods that are going down, but it's also the price of services. So you have goods and services 
their prices are going down. But what if you took out a loan? Is the value of the loan going down? No. So what ends up happening is you're trying to pay the loan back with dollars that are worth more than the ones that you borrowed in the first place. Let me give you this example. Average American, $200,000 of debt. They have a $60,000 income. Mm. Let's say there's real, real deflation. Their income goes from 60 to 30, right? That's a reduction in price on their services. What just happened to their $200,000 of debt? It doubled on them in real yep. economic terms. So mm. they can't afford to pay it back. And you have this thing that rampaged the 1930s in the United States called debt destruction. Uh, and it created a tremendous amount of unemployment, 26 27% unemployment at the peak. Mm. So you don't, right, so. you don't want deflation. You don't want inflation because we just went over that. That's a theft of your time and your energy. Mm. Uh, you're working for a living. They give you the $10,000, but they just clipped you. So now the $10,000 has $8,000 of purchasing power. Is that fair? Even though nominally it looks like it's $10,000. Look at what's happened. You know, yeah. When I left school, the Goldman Sachs partner was making $5 million a year. Today, that's worth $18 million in 2021 dollars. You see what mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah, so, I do. So anyway, you have to be careful with this stuff. To me, I would like it to be as stable as possible. That increases the confidence for everybody. And we haven't done that. We've yeah. inflated the living daylights out of it. We made... In calendar year 2021, 469 billion more U.S. dollars than we did the prior year. That's scary stuff. It's not. I feel like we've been desensitized to big numbers like that. Like I love this documentary, no the smartest guys in the room, the Enron fraud. And right. you know, you go back and look at that, and that's kind of in the psychological makeup of people. Like that's a huge fraud. And yeah. you go back, and it was like 90 billion dollars. You hear that, yeah. you're like, yeah. That's not even yeah. that big. Crazy, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I saved the most important question uh, for you for last year. You seem like a guy who uh, knows his ways around some good uh, Italian New York eateries. Tell me, uh, other than Bermontis, where do I need to uh, try well, what I need to do? You got to score. You got to score an invite. But you know, Rayos is obviously the best Italian restaurant, in my opinion. Mm. The best. All right, cool. Rayos. Um, right. Yeah, Rayos. Uh, Campagnola is very good. Mm. There's a place called San Pietro at 54th between Madison and. And fifth, one of my favorite mm. Italian restaurants. Mm. You know, you well, gotta I don't go know to Avra if, if you like Greek food. Avra, A V R A. I do. We got, got, got some real great restaurants in this city. All right, awesome man. All right, well, uh, Anthony, you've already been super generous with your time. Thank oh, you so I much for doing this. I'm excited. Right. Yeah, uh, you'd be well, and uh, good luck with everything. And let me see if I can be helpful to you on your conference. Absolutely, we'll chat right, offline. Thanks again. Bye bye. All right.